Section 5 of Six Stories by George MacDonald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alison Valdes. Six Stories by George MacDonald. Section 5 The Wow O Riven. Elsie Scott had let her work fall on her knees, and her hands on her work, and was looking out of the wide low window of her room, which was on one of the ground floors of the village street. Through a gap in the household shrubbery of fuchsias and myrtles filling the window-sill, one passing on the foot-pavement might get a momentary glimpse of her pale face, lighted up with two blue eyes, over which some inward trouble had spread a faint gauze-like haziness. But almost before her thoughts had had time to wander back to this trouble, a shout of children's voices at the other end of the street reached her ear. She listened a moment. A shadow of displeasure and pain crossed her countenance, and rising hastily, she betook herself to an inner apartment, and closed the door behind her. Meantime the sounds drew nearer, and by and by an old man, whose strange appearance and dress showed that he had little capacity either for good or evil, passed the window. His clothes were comfortable enough in quality and condition, for they were the annual gift of a benevolent lady in the neighbourhood, but being made to accommodate his taste, both known and traditional, they were somewhat peculiar in cut and adornment. Both coat and trousers were of a dark grey cloth, but the former, which in its shape partook of the military, had a straight collar of yellow and narrow cuffs of the same while upon both sleeves, about the place where the corporal wears his stripes, was expressed in the same yellow cloth a somewhat singular device. It was as close as imitation to a bell, with its tongue hanging out of its mouth, as the tailor's skill could produce from a single piece of cloth. The origin of the military cut of his coat was well known. His preference for it arose in the time of the wars with the first Napoleon, when the threatened invasion of the country caused the organization of many volunteer regiments. The martial show and exercises captivated the poor man's fancy, and from that time forward nothing pleased his vanity, and consequently conciliated his good will more, than to style him by his favorite title, the Colonel. But the badge on his arm had a deeper origin, which will be partially manifest in the course of the story, if story it can be called. It was indeed the baptism of the fool, the outward and visible sign of his relation to the infinite and unseen. His countenance, however, although the features were not of any peculiarly lower animal type, showed no corresponding sign of the consciousness of such a relation, being as vacant as human countenance could well be. The cause of Elsie's annoyance was that the fool was annoyed. He was followed by a troop of boys, who turned his rank into scorn, and assailed him with epithets hateful to him. Although the most harmless of creatures when let alone, he was dangerous when roused, and now he stooped repeatedly to pick up stones and hurl them at his tormentors, who took care, while abusing him, to keep at a considerable distance, lest he should get hold of them. Amidst the sounds of derision that followed him, might be heard the words frequently repeated, "'Come hame! Come hame!' But in a few minutes the noise ceased, either from the interference of some friendly inhabitant, or that the boys grew weary, and departed in search of other amusement. By and by Elsie might be seen again at her work in the window, 
but the cloud over her eyes was deeper, and her whole face more sad. Indeed, so much did the persecution of this poor man affect her, that an onlooker would have been compelled to seek the cause in some yet deeper sympathy than that commonly felt for the oppressed, even by women. And such a sympathy existed, strange as it may seem, between this beautiful girl, for many called her a bonny lassie, and this tatter of humanity. Nothing would have been further from the thoughts of those that knew them than the supposition of any correspondence or connection between them, yet this sympathy sprang in part from a real similarity in their history and present condition. All the facts that were known about Field Jock's origin were these that seventy years ago a man who had gone with his horse and cart some miles from the village to fetch home a load of peat from a desolate moss had heard while toiling along as rough a road on as lonely a hillside as any in scotland the cry of a child and searching about had found the infant hardly wrapped in rags and untended as if the earth herself had just given him birth that desert moor wild and dismal broken and watery the only bosom for him to lie on and the cold clear night heaven his only covering. The man had brought him home, and the parish had taken parish care of him. He had grown up and proved what he now was, almost an idiot. Many of the townspeople were kind to him, and employed him in fetching water for them from the river or wells in the neighbourhood, paying him for his troubles in victuals or whisky, of which he was very fond. He seldom spoke, and the sentences he could utter were few. Yet the tone, and even the words of his limited vocabulary, were sufficient to express gratitude and some measure of love towards those who were kind to him, and hatred of those who teased and insulted him. He lived a life without aim, and apparently to no purpose. In this, resembling most of his more gifted fellow-men, who, with all the tools and materials necessary for building a noble mansion, are yet content with a clay hut. Elsie, on the contrary, had been born into a comfortable farmhouse, amidst homeliness and abundance. But at a very early age she had lost both father and mother, not so early, however, that she had faint memories of warm, soft times on her mother's bosom, and of refuge in her mother's arms from the attacks of geese and the pursuit of pigs. Therefore, in after-times, when she looked forward to heaven, it was as much a reverting to the old heavenly times of childhood and of mother's love, as an anticipation of something yet to be revealed. Indeed, without some such memory, how should we ever picture to ourselves a perfect rest? But sometimes it would seem as if the more a heart was made capable of loving, the less it had to love. And poor Elsie, in passing from a mother's to a brother's guardianship, felt a change of spiritual temperature too keen. He was not a bad man, or incapable of benevolence, when touched by the sight of want, in anything of which he would himself have felt the privation. But he was so coarsely made, that only the purest animal necessities affected him, and a hard word or unfeeling speech could never have reached the quick of his nature, through the hide that enclosed it. Elsie, on the contrary, was excessively and painfully sensitive, as if her nature constantly portended an invisible multitude of half-spiritual, half-nervous antennae, which shrank and trembled in every current of air, at all below their own temperature. The effect of this upon her behaviour was such that she was called odd, and the poor girl felt she was not like other people. It could not help it. Her brother, too, laughed at her without the slightest idea of the pain he occasioned, or the remotest feeling of curiosity as to what the inward and consistent causes of the outward abnormal condition might be. 
tenderness was the divine comforting she needed, and it was altogether absent from her brother's character and behaviour. Her neighbours looked on her with some interest, but they rather shunned than courted her acquaintance, especially after the return of certain nervous attacks to which she had been subject in childhood, and which were again brought on by the events I must relate. It is curious how certain diseases repel, by a kind of awe, the sympathies of the neighbours, as if by the fact of being subject to them, the patient were removed into another realm of existence, from which, like the dead with the living, she can hold communion with those around her only partially, and with a mixture of dread pervading the intercourse. Thus some of the deepest, purest wells of spiritual life are, like those in old castles, choked up by the decay of the outer walls. But what tended more than anything, perhaps, to keep up the painful unrest of her soul, for the beauty of her character was evident in the fact that the irritation seldom reached her mind, was a circumstance at which, in its present connection, some of my readers will smile, and others feel a shudder corresponding in kind to that of Elsie. Her brother was very fond of a rather small but ferocious-looking bulldog, which followed close at his heels wherever he went, with hanging head and slouching gait, never leaping or racing about like other dogs. When in the house he always lay under his master's chair. He seemed to dislike Elsie, and she felt an unspeakable repugnance to him. Though she never mentioned her aversion, her brother easily saw it by the way in which she avoided the animal, and attributing it entirely to fear, which indeed had a great share in the matter, he would cruelly aggravate it by telling her stories of the fierce hardihood and relentless persistency of this kind of animal. He dared not yet further increase her terror by offering to set the creature upon her, because it was doubtful whether he might be able to restrain him, but the mental suffering which he occasioned by this heartless conduct, and for which he had no sympathy, was as severe as many bodily sufferings to which he would have been sorry to subject her. Whenever the poor girl happened inadvertently to pass near the dog, which was seldom, a low growl made her aware of his proximity, and drove her to a quick retreat. He was, in fact, the animal impersonation of the animal opposition which she had continually to endure. Like chooses like, and the bulldog in her brother made choice of the bulldog out of him for his companion. So her day was one of shrinking fear and multiform discomfort. But a nature capable of so much distress must of necessity be capable of a corresponding amount of pleasure, and in her case this was manifest in the fact that sleep and the quiet of her own room restored her wonderfully. If she was only let alone, a calm mood filled with images of pleasure soon took possession of her mind. Her acquaintance with the fool had commenced some ten years previous to the time I write of, when she was quite a little girl, and had come from the country with her brother, who, having taken a small farm close to the town, preferred residing in the town to occupying the farmhouse, which was not comfortable. She looked at first with some terror on his uncouth appearance, and with much wonderment on his strange dress. This wonder was heightened by a conversation she overheard one day in the street between the fool and a little pale-faced boy, who, approaching him respectfully, said, "'Well, Colonel!' "'Well, laddie,' was the reply, "'fat is the wow say, Colonel!' "'Come hame! Come hame!' answered the Colonel, with both accent and quantity heaped on the word hame. What the wow could be, she had no idea, only as the years passed on, the strange word became in her mind indescribably associated with the strange shape and yellow cloth on his sleeves. 
Had she been a native of the town, she could not have failed to know its import, so familiar was every one with it, although it did not belong to the local vocabulary. But as it was, years passed away before she discovered its meaning. And when, again and again, the fool, attempting to convey his gratitude for some kindness she had shown him, mumbled over the words, The Wow Riven, the Wow Riven, the wonder would return as to what could be the idea associated with them in his mind. But she made no advance towards their explanation. That, however, which most attracted her to the old man was his persecution by the children. They were to him what the bulldog was to her, the constant source of irritation and annoyance. They could hardly hurt him, nor did he appear to dread other injury from them than insult, to which, fool though he was, he was keenly alive. Human gadflies that they were, they sometimes stung him beyond endurance, and he would curse them in the impotence of his anger. Once or twice Elsie had been so far carried beyond her constitutional timidity by sympathy for the distress of her friend, that she had gone out and talked to the boys, even scolded them, so that they slunk away ashamed, and began to stand as much in dread of her as of the clutches of their prey. So she, gentle and timid to excess, acquired among them the reputation of a termagant. Popular opinion among children as among men is often just, but is often very unjust, for the same manifestations may proceed from opposite principles, and therefore, as the indices to character, may mislead as often as enlighten. Next door to the house in which Elsie resided, dwelt a tradesman and his wife, who kept an indefinite sort of shop, in which various kinds of goods were exposed for sale. Their youngest son was about the same age as Elsie, and, while they were rather more than children and less than young people, he spent many of his evenings with her, somewhat to the loss of position in his classes at the parish school. They were indeed much attached to each other, and, peculiarly constituted as Elsie was, one may imagine what kind of heavenly messenger a companion stronger than herself must have been to her. In fact, if she could have framed an undefinable need of her childlike nature into an articulate prayer, it would have been, "'Give me someone to love me stronger than I.' Any love was helpful, yes, in its degree, saving to her poor troubled soul. But the hope, as they grew older together, that the powerful yet tender-hearted youth really loved her, and would one day make her his wife, was like the opening of heavenly eyes of life and love in the hitherto blank and death-like face of her existence. But nothing had been said of love, although they met and parted like lovers. Doubtless, if the circles of their thought and feeling had continued, as now, to intersect each other, there would have been no interruption in their affection. But the time at length arrived when the old couple, seeing the rest of their family comfortably settled in life, resolved to make a gentleman of the youngest, and so sent him from school to college. The facilities existing in Scotland for providing a professional training enabled them to educate him as a surgeon. He parted from Elsie with some regret, but far less dependent on her than she was on him, and full of the prospects of the future, he felt none of that sinking at the heart which seemed to lay her whole nature open to a fresh inroad of all the terrors and sorrows of her peculiar existence. No correspondence took place between them. New pursuits and relations, and the development of his tastes and judgments, entirely altered the position of poor Elsie in his memory. Having been, during their intercourse, far less of a man than she of a woman, he had no definite idea of the place he had occupied in her regard, 
and in his mind she receded into the background of the past, without his having any idea that she would suffer thereby, or that he was unjust towards her. While in her thoughts his image stood in the highest and clearest relief. It was the centre-point from which, and towards which, all lines radiated and converged, and although she could not but be doubtful about the future, yet there was much hope mingled with her doubts. But when at the close of two years he visited his native village, and she saw before her, instead of the homely youth who had left her that winter evening, one who, in her inexperienced eyes, appeared a finished gentleman, her heart sank within her, as if she had found nature herself false in her ripening processes, destroying the beautiful promise of a former year by changing instead of developing her creations. He spoke kindly to her, but not cordially. To her ear the voice seemed to come from a great distance out of the past, and while she looked upon him, that optical change passed over her vision, which all have experienced after gazing abstractedly on any object for a time. His form grew very small, and receded to an immeasurable distance, till her imagination, mingling with the twilight haze of her senses, she seemed to see him standing far off on a hill, with the bright horizon of sunset for a background to his clearly defined figure. She knew no more till she found herself in bed in the dark, and the first message that reached her from the outer world was the infernal growl of the bulldog from the room below. Next day she saw her lover walking with two ladies, who would have thought it some degree of condescension to speak to her, and he passed the house without once looking towards it. One who is sufficiently possessed by the demon of nervousness to be glad of the magnetic influences of a friend's company in a public promenade, or of a horse beneath him in passing through a churchyard, will have some faint idea of how unutterably exposed and defenceless poor Elsie now felt on the crowded thoroughfare of life. And so the insensibility which had overtaken her was not the ordinary swoon with which nature relieves the overstrained nerves, but the return of the epileptic fits of her early childhood, and if the condition of the poor girl had been pitiable before, it was tenfold more so now. Yet she did not complain, but bore all in silence, though it was evident that her health was giving way. But now help came to her from a strange quarter, though many might not be willing to accord the name of help to that which rather hastened than retarded the progress of her decline. She had gone to spend a few of the summer days with a relative in the country, some miles from her home, if home it could be called. One evening toward sunset she went out for a solitary walk. Passing from the little garden gate, she went along a bare country road for some distance, and then turning aside by a footpath through a thicket of low trees, she came out in a lonely little churchyard on the hillside. Hardly knowing whether or not she had intended to go there, she seated herself on a mound covered with long grass, one of many. Before her stood the ruins of an old church, which was taking centuries to crumble. Little remained but the gable wall, immensely thick, and covered with ancient ivy. The rays of the setting sun fell on a mound at its foot, not green like the rest, but of a rich red-brown in the rosy sunset, and evidently but newly heaped up. Her eyes, too, rested upon it. Slowly the sun sank below the near horizon. As the last brilliant point disappeared, the ivy darkened, and a wind arose and shook all its leaves, making them look cold and troubled, and to Elsie's ear came a low faint sound as of a far-off bell. But close beside her, and she started and shivered at the sound, 
rose a deep, monotonous, almost sepulchral voice. "'Come hame! Come hame! The wow! The wow!' At once she understood the whole. She sat in the churchyard of the ancient parish church of Ruthven, and when she lifted up her eyes, there she saw, in the half-ruined belfry, the old bell, all but hidden with ivy, which the passing wind had roused to utter one sleepy tone, and there beside her stood the fool with the bell on his arm, and to him and to her the wow-riven said, "'Come hame! Come hame!' Ah, what did she want in the whole universe of God but a home? And though the ground beneath was hard, and the sky overhead far and boundless, and the hillside lonely and companionless, yet somewhere within the visible, and beyond these the outer surfaces of creation, there might be a home for her, as round the wintry house the snows lie heaped up cold and white and dreary all the long forenight, while within, beyond the closed shutters, and giving no glimmer through the thick stone walls, the fires are blazing joyously, and the voices and laughter of young unfrozen children are heard, and nothing belongs to winter but the grey hairs on the heads of the parents, within whose warm hearts childlike voices are heard, and childlike thoughts move to and fro. The kernel of winter itself is spring, or a sleeping summer. It was no wonder that the fool, cast out of the earth on a far more desolate spot than this, should seek to return within her bosom at this place of open doors, and should call it home. For surely the surface of the earth had no home for him. The mound at the foot of the gable contained the body of one who had shown him kindness. He had followed the funeral that afternoon from the town, and had remained behind with the bell. Indeed, it was his custom, though Elsie had not known it, to follow every funeral going to this, his favourite churchyard of Ruthven, and possibly in imitation of its booming, for it was still told at the funerals, he had given the old bell the name of the Wow, and had translated its monotonous clangour into the articulate sounds, Come hame, come hame. What precise meaning he attached to the words it is impossible to say, but it was evident that the place possessed a strange attraction for him, drawing him towards it by the cords of some spiritual magnetism. It is possible that in the mind of the idiot there may have been some feeling about this churchyard and bell, which in the mind of another would have become a grand poetic thought, a feeling as if the ghostly old bell hung at the church door of the invisible world, and ever and anon rang out joyous notes, though they sounded sad in the ears of the living, calling to the children of the unseen to come home, come home. She sat for some time in silence, for the bell did not ring again, and the fool spoke no more, till the dews began to fall, when she rose and went home, followed by her companion, who passed the night in the barn. From that hour Elsie was furnished with the visual image of the rest she sought, an image which, mingling with deeper and holier thoughts, became, like the bow set in the cloud, the earthly pledge and sign of the fulfilment of heavenly hopes. Often when the wintry fog of cold discomfort and homelessness filled her soul, all at once the picture of the little churchyard, with the old gable and belfry, and the slanting sunlight steeping down to the very roots of the long grass in the graves, arose in the darkened chamber, camera obscura, of her soul, and again she heard the faint aeolian sound of the bell, and the voice of the prophet-fool who interpreted the oracle, and the inward weariness was soothed by the promise of a long sleep. 
Who can tell how many have been counted fools simply because they were prophets? Or how much of the madness in the world may be the utterance of thoughts true and just, but belonging to a region differing from ours in its nature and scenery? But to Elsie, looking out of her window, came the mocking tones of the idle boys who had chosen as the vehicle of their scorn the very words which showed the relation of the fool to the Eternal, and revealed in him an element higher far than any yet developed in them. They turned his glory into shame, like the enemies of David when they mocked the would-be king. And the best in a man is often that which is most condemned by those who have not attained to his goodness. The words, however, even as repeated by the boys, had not solely awakened indignation at the persecution of the old man. They had likewise comforted her with the thought of the refuge that awaited both him and her. But the same evening a worse trial was in store for her. Again she sat near the window, oppressed by the consciousness that her brother had come in. He had gone upstairs, and his dog had remained at the door, exchanging surly compliments, with some of his own kind, when the fool came strolling past, and, I do not know from what cause, the dog flew at him. Elsie heard his cry and looked up. Her fear of the brute vanished in a moment before her sympathy for her friend. She darted from the house, and rushed towards the dog to drag him off the defenceless idiot, calling him by his name in a tone of anger and dislike. He left the fool, and, springing at Elsie, seized her by the arm above the elbow with such a grip that, in the midst of her agony, she fancied she heard the bone crack. But she uttered no cry, for the most apprehensive are sometimes the most courageous. Just then, however, her former lover was coming along the street, and, catching a glimpse of what had happened, was on the spot in an instant, took the dog by the throat with a grip not inferior to his own, having thus compelled him to relax his hold, dashed him on the ground with a force that almost stunned him, and then with a superadded kick sent him away limping and howling. Whereupon the fool, attacking him furiously with a stick, would certainly have finished him had not his master descried his plight and come to his rescue. Meantime the young surgeon had carried Elsie into the house, for as soon as she was rescued from the dog she had fallen down in one of her fits, which were becoming more and more frequent of themselves, and little needed such a shock as this to increase their violence. He was dressing her arm when she began to recover, and when she opened her eyes, in a state of half-consciousness, the first object she beheld was his face bending over her. Recalling nothing of what had occurred, it seemed to her, in the dreamy condition in which the fit had left her, the same face, unchanged, which had once shone in upon her tardy springtime, and promised to ripen it into summer. She forgot it had departed, and left her in the wintry cold. And so she uttered wild words of love and trust, and the youth, while stung with remorse at his own neglect, was astonished to perceive the poetic forms of beauty in which the soul of the uneducated maiden burst into flower. But as her senses recovered themselves, the face gradually changed to her, as if the slow alteration of two years had been phantasmagorically compressed into a few moments, and the glow departed from the maiden's thoughts and words, and her soul found itself at the narrow window of the present, from which she could behold but a dreary country. From the street came the iambic cry of the fool, "'Come hame! Come hame!' Tycho Brahe, I think, is said to have kept a fool, who frequently sat at his feet in his study, and to whose mutterings he used to listen in the pauses of his own thought. 
the shining soul of the astronomer drew forth the rainbow of harmony from the misty spray of words ascending ever from the dark gulf into which the thoughts of the idiot were ever falling he beheld curious concurrences of words therein and could read strange meanings from them sometimes even received wondrous hints for the direction of celestial inquiry from what to any other and it may be to the fool himself was but a ceaseless and aimless babble such power lieth in words it is not then to be wondered at that the sounds i have mentioned should fall on the ears of elsie at such a moment as a message from god himself this then all this dreariness was but a passing show like the rest and there lay somewhere for her a reality a home the tears burst up from her oppressed heart she received the message and prepared to go home from that time her strength gradually sank but her spirits as steadily rose the strength of the fool too began to fail for he was old he bore all the signs of age even to the gray hairs which betokened no wisdom but one cannot say what wisdom might be in him or how far he had fought his own battle and been victorious whether any notion of a continuance of life and thought dwelt in his brain it is impossible to tell but he seemed to have the idea that this was not his home, and those who saw him gradually approaching his end might well anticipate for him a higher life in the world to come. He had passed through this world without ever awaking to such a consciousness of being as is common to mankind. He had spent his years like a weary dream through a long night, a strange, dismal, unkindly dream, and now the morning was at hand. Often in his dream had he listened with sleepy senses to the ringing of the bell, but that bell would awake him at last. He was like a seed buried too deep in the soil, to which the light has never penetrated, and which, therefore, has never forced its way upwards to the open air, never experienced the resurrection of the dead. But seeds will grow, ages after they have fallen into the earth, and indeed with many kinds, and within some limits, the older the seed before it germinates, more plentiful the fruit and may it not be believed of many human beings that the great husbandman having sown them like seeds in the soil of human affairs there they lie buried a life long and only after the upturning of the soil by death reach a position in which the awakening of their aspiration and the consequent growth become possible surely he has made nothing in vain a violent cold and cough brought him at last near to his end, and hearing that he was ill, Elsie ventured one bright spring day to go to see him. When she entered the miserable room where he lay, he held out his hand to her with something like a smile, and muttered feebly and painfully, "'I'm going to the wow, nay to come back again.' Elsie could not restrain her tears, while the old man, looking fixedly at her, though with meaningless eyes, muttered for the last time, "'Come hame, come hame,' and sank into a lethargy, from which nothing could rouse him, till next morning he was waked by friendly death from the long sleep of this world's night. They bore him to his favourite churchyard, and buried him within the sight of the old church, below his loved bell, which had ever been to him as the cuckoo-note of a coming spring. Thus he at length obeyed its summons, and went home. Elsie lingered till the first summer days lay warm on the land. Several kind hearts in the village, hearing of her illness, visited her and ministered to her. 
wondering at her sweetness and patience, they regretted they had not known her before. How much consolation might not their kindness have imparted, and how much might not their sympathy have strengthened her on her painful road! But they could not long have delayed her going home. Nor mentally constituted as she was, would this have been at all to be desired. Indeed, it was chiefly the expectation of departure that quieted and soothed her tremulous nature. It is true that a deep spring of hope and faith kept singing on in her heart. But this alone, without the anticipation of speedy release, could only have kept her mind at peace. It could not have reached, at least for a long time, the borderland between body and mind in which her disease lay. One still night of summer, the nurse who watched by her bedside heard her murmur through her sleep, "'I hear it. Come hame. Come hame. I'm comin'. I'm comin'. I'm going home to the well. Nay to come back.' She woke at the sound of her own words, and begged the nurse to convey to her brother her last request, that she might be buried by the side of the fool within the old church of Ruthven. Then she turned her face to the wall, and in the morning was found quiet and cold. She must have died within a few minutes after her last words. She was buried according to her request, and thus she too went home. Side by side rest the aged fool and the young maiden, but the bell called them, and they obeyed, and surely they found the fire burning bright, and heard friendly voices, and felt sweet lips on theirs, in the home to which they went. Surely both intellect and love were waiting them there. Still the old bell hangs in the old gable, and whenever another is borne to the old churchyard, it keeps calling to those who are left behind, with the same sad but friendly and unchanging voice, Come hame, come hame, come hame. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy mourning shall be ended. Isaiah 40.20 End of section 5